thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and to this new series that I began to introduce last week on the law and the Constitution. And you may recall that last week we discussed the fact that Blackstone, William Blackstone, the preeminent commentator on the common law whose works on the laws of England and the common law were known to our framers, studied by our framers, and used by our current Supreme Court to interpret the U.S. Constitution, said that the study of law was important for everyone. I won't go back and repeat what he said and for the reasons that he gave, but the ignorance of the law, he says, is just something that cannot be allowed to take place among those who are, are charged with the issues of government and, and governing themselves, which, of course, is all of us, because the law governs all of us. So all of us need to understand the rudimentary elements of what law is and how law, as distinguished from the Constitution, which we'll get into, actually framed the Constitution. Again, something we'll get into and explain. But I want to look for a moment today at what the Scripture says about the law in order that we might appreciate that this is not just a practical thing that we're doing, a thing that learned people should do, but something that is important to God, something that is important to Scripture and thus important to Christians. Oftentimes, Christians do not understand the importance of law to God, to a biblical worldview, and really to a righteous society in many ways. And, and today what we're going to do is we're going to look at what the Scripture says, and then we're going to look at some examples of what the Supreme Court has said, and that the homosexual advocates uh, for legal changes have said to demonstrate the truth of what Scripture says. Now, what the Scripture says, this was fascinating to me, is that if we turn to Galatians chapter 3, we see a couple of verses that are important here. So he says, Paul, in writing to the Galatians, says, What purpose, then, does the law serve? Now, of course, the Hebrews were given a law, and that was the righteous law of God. And, of course, the righteous law of God, as we learn from our study of the rule of law, applies to all persons at all times and everywhere. And so he says that God added his law for the Hebrew people because of transgressions till the seed, Christ, should come to whom the promise was made and was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. And then he says this in verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now let's take a look at that. He's saying God gave the law to his people, the Ten Commandments specifically, and then all the applications of it to civil instances because of transgressions. In other words, because we were fallen sinful people, we didn't know God nor the righteousness of God 
nor the law of God. And so he gave us the law. Why? Because we needed it in order to teach us what is right, what is good, and what is just. And that's really what he's then saying five verses later, that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, what is he, he saying there? Again, let's look at a couple of things. He says, when you understand the righteousness and the justice of God's law, you realize you need a Savior. You realize that by keeping all the law, you're going to fall short. You're going to fall short every day. And you can't ever make up for yesterday's shortfall by anything you do today, nor can there be anything you do today that will make up for tomorrow's shortfall. And it is a hopeless situation. And you need hope. And Christ is that hope. But see, what he's saying here is the law is, in fact, our schoolmaster. It teaches us something. And, and so uh, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 says that the magistrate is appointed to commend the good and punish the evil. That's the purpose of the lawmaker, commend good, punish evil, because the law will inevitably teach. In fact, the Greek word schoolmaster there is phadagogos, the word pedagogy in our terminology. Pedagogy has to do with teaching, the teacher. Pedagogy is the study of instruction and teaching. So he's saying that the law is a teacher. The law has a pedagogical effect. Now, if we turn to what Paul said in Romans 7, 7, he says this, is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except that the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So see, again, we're, we're tying this in here to God is saying that the law is going to teach. The law exposes righteousness and unrighteousness. And of course, if the law calls what's evil good and good evil, that's what we will then learn. And in fact, that isn't what we have learned. The United States Supreme Court, and now I'm going to move to the next part, seeing that this concept in Scripture of the pedagogical teaching aspects of the law cannot be escaped even by the heathen that are on our Supreme Court. And specifically, I'm referring to the decision of the Supreme Court in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, in which they upheld Roe versus Wade and uh, said that liberty was the right of a woman to uh, kill her unborn child. Part of the reason that the court held that, uh, they didn't really engage with the language of the Constitution and what was meant by the word person or liberty or life. Uh, they essentially just took the precedent of Roe, that there's a right to abortion, and then decided whether they should keep it or not. And of course, one of the questions that about keeping a law is, well, what's the effect of not keeping the law? If we change the law, what will, will be the effect of changing the law? Now, oftentimes, we don't really even think through that. Our politicians don't. We, we can move the ancient boundary, uh, as Proverbs warns us not to do, without thinking about why it was there and what will happen if it is moved. But the Supreme Court engaged in exactly this pedagogical analysis of, of law and its precedents by saying we cannot reverse Roe versus Wade, and here is why. Listen to this. Quote, 
For two decades of economic and social developments, people have organized intimate relationships and made choices that define their views of themselves and their places in society in reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail. You see, what the law has done, they said, because this has been the law for almost two decades, it's changed everything. It's changed how people understand their intimate relationships. It's even changed the way they view and define themselves. What it began to change is that, that in other words, being pregnant doesn't make one a mother. Deciding whether to keep a baby makes one a mother. It redefined our understanding of motherhood. Now, three years after Roe redefined what it meant to be a person, what it meant to be a mother, the court was confronted with a state law that allowed a father, a married father, the father married to the woman who has his child, whether he had any right to say anything about the abortion. And the court, having redefined what it means to be a person and redefining what it means to be a mother, said, no, 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 a father is really, no, he has a biological relationship to the child. But marriage doesn't give him any rights over the woman's body. So it's unconstitutional to give a man a voice in the abortion of his wife's child that they conceived together. Now think about how that violates every fundamental tenet of what it means to be married. Remember Paul says, neither of you have power over your own bodies anymore, but, but you have duties to each other with respect to your bodies. That fathers have no real legal or legally recognizable interest in their own child conceived by their wife. And so that law began to change how we viewed even marriage. And what happened? 20, no, excuse me, 1973 to 2015 is 42 years later, the Supreme Court redefined what marriage was in Obergefell versus Hodges. You see the natural progression of what the law had been teaching? So the Supreme Court goes on in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992 and says, while the effect of reliance on Roe by women, of course, cannot be exactly measured, neither can the certain cost of overruling Roe for people who have ordered their thinking and living around that case be dismissed. In other words, we can't dismiss the fact that the law has had its effects. It has taught people. It has changed how they think. It has changed how they live. It's taught them a different way of thinking about themselves and a different way of living in the world. And, well, if we reverse Roe, we're going to rip up what we think we know, what we've come to be, and we just can't do that. You see the importance of the law? The Supreme Court, in, in repudiating the law of God regarding persons and human reality and human relationships, acknowledges that the law teaches And it's acknowledged that after 20 years, it's changed the way we view ourselves and our places in society, our thinking, the way we live. Now, I want to move on to the issue 
of homosexuality. And again, demonstrate this point that the law teaches. And if we don't understand the pedagogical effect of law, that it is teaching us, then we, we will be a lost society. And of course, we're losing our society. But I'm going to take the next little section I want to read from a book called After the Ball by Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen. And the subtitle for the book is How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. Now, they're a little bit late in uh, their prediction that it would, that would happen in the 90s. This is what they wrote in 1989. They're talking about state sodomy laws. And of course, at one time, we had uh, sodomy laws, laws against homosexual sodomy in every state. It was a criminal offense. Now, they point out that those laws are rarely enforced. And part of the reason they were enforced was because the sexual lives of homosexuals were largely kept private. And so the law wouldn't really know, or law enforcement wouldn't really know if the law is being violated. And he says this about those laws. The survival of gay sodomy laws, even unenforced, sends a message to both straights and gays that homosexuality is intrinsically wrong, sinful, because it's unnatural. And that really is the underlying purpose of such laws, to stand bolt upright on the social plane as ugly monuments, visible symbols of society's moral condemnation of gays. Thus, sodomy laws function less as statutes than as parliamentary resolutions. Through them, straits have passed a resolution against homosexuality. See what he's saying here. Did you notice he used the word, they send a message. The law teaches. When you read the complaints that are being filed by advocates of homosexuality and transgenderism, you will see sprinkled throughout the complaint statements that the laws against what they want to do teach, send a message, teach send a message. They understand that when you have laws that reflect what God says, that law teaches that what they do is not right. You see, we inherently believe that if the law prohibits something, well, it must be wrong, right? Or if the law allows something, surely the law wouldn't allow it, so it must be wrong, right? You see how that works? And so what he's saying here is that the gay community in 1989 doesn't understand the real reason for these laws. It's not because we're getting convicted right and left. There are very few convictions that takes place. But the law is a resolution. Uh, meaning by that, whereas, 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 therefore be it resolved, this is wrong. Okay? And he said, so that is sending a message. It's teaching. And he continues on, or they continue on in the book, saying, Lest this purpose be missed, consider the titles which some states have given their sodomy statutes. And I'll just read you some of those that he put there. Crimes against nature, unnatural or perverted sexual practices, sodomy and buggery, unnatural and lascivious acts, unnatural intercourse, sexual psychopaths, District of Columbia, interestingly. So the authors of this 
book, After the Ball, asks this question. How can we free ourselves of this legal curse? When homosexual behavior is characterized this way by law, repeal becomes exceedingly tricky. How does one knock down a symbol of moral condemnation without seeming to raise up an opposite symbol, that is, without formally approving of homosexuality? Our enemies, they write, understand this dilemma well and deliberately put lawmakers on the spot whenever the question of repealing outdated sodomy laws arise. While straight legislators might admit that gay sodomy statutes are unfair and ineffective, few have the public courage to reverse the moral valence of the laws. So proscriptions linger on the books, gathering dust. So he says, but the problem is we can't allow this to happen. So he continues on, or the authors continue on, instead of accepting this sinister system, America's 25 million gays might do better to turn themselves in, in mass, at local police precincts as admitted sodomites. That at least would be an unprecedented act of civil obedience with the impact of massive disobedience because it would rattle America's false construction of reality to its foundations and might force a formal public repudiation of the sodomy laws. But for now, that's just a daydream. And so, he says, we need to go to court. We need to begin to do public relations activities. And we need to stop making ourselves look uh, crazy and outside the mainstream. So you see what, what they're saying here is uh, that laws teach, they send messages, and we have to find a way to counter that message. And of course what they've done is they've gone to the Supreme Court and they've begun to pound away and pound away to say this is just normal. They went to the American Psychiatric Association, the psychological groups, and got them to change their views of these things. They then began to engage in the community in ways where being willing and open and bold say, well, we'll contribute to create this art project or the theater project or all these other things. And we're just like y'all, except we just don't Love people of the opposite sex. You know, we're not attracted to them. Makes it all sound just so normal and natural now as opposed to, say, unnatural. But the point today is, is, is not so much that we need to get control of the media. We just need to do what they were saying. To say in mass, well, we believe there are certain things that are true about the nature of being human. And uh, we're not going to carry out laws as ministers, for example, that define marriage contrary to what we believe marriage to be. If the state's going to define marriage without regard to the two biological sexes, is as if any two people can marry and that constitutes a marriage, as if triangles are the same thing as squares and squares are the same thing as triangles, well, if that's what the law wants to say, um, you'll have to get elected officials to carry out those licensing laws because we're not going to do them anymore. You see, our own side doesn't understand what, quote, the other side does understand because they understand the importance of law, the pedagogical effects, the teaching effects, the messaging effects of law. And they're saying we need to find ways to change the public perception so that those laws can go away. And they'll stop teaching contrary to what we believe. 
And my friends, if we don't begin to understand the law and the law upon which the Constitution was grounded and upon which it was framed, we can expect this progression of unhuman, dehumanizing, according to God's Word, law, to continue. Next week, we're going to take a look at how it is that actually the Constitution was indeed framed according to a pre-existing, pre-constitutional, pre-political law, and how the Constitution must be interpreted to that first law, which is essentially the rule of law. So I hope you'll join me next week as we continue this series on Law and the Constitution at God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.